I was a real indie kid and I just loved music. And then the Hacienda opened. It was like a spaceship landing in this grey city. We were trying to introduce to Manchester a whole new way of thought and a way of living. We weren't earning a lot of money from New Order because most of it was going in the Hacienda. So we just rent a cellar, a few bands in, two tables, no brainer, how hard can it be? And then all fucking hell broke loose. It was just beautiful. A lot of white guys who couldn't dance, it didn't matter anymore. You don't need to be able to dance, you can just do that and throw your arms. It felt like it was breaking boundaries. It was a revolution and it was a revolution on a dance floor. Nobody would settle for going home at two o'clock in the morning anymore. Everybody thinks everybody's amazing and everything is amazing, but truly, one fucking term really described that time. It was amazing. In the early 80s in Manchester, it was very dull. There was nowhere to go to. I wasn't a person who went to pubs or anything like that. You just went through these doors and there was this bright space. It was the brightest building I'd ever been in. It was just absolutely incredible. And I just thought, yeah, I really want to be involved in this place. The opening night was really stressful. We were trying to get the place finished. The floor around the dance floor, it was just painted. It was still very wet. So we had planks going across, and we were literally walking the planks. And we had Bernard Manning. I honestly, I'm not just saying it now, I didn't book Bernard. Turned up in his Rolls Royce, came on, told a few jokes which no one laughed at really. And then afterwards he said, uh, keep the money, you'll need it for this shithole. <laughs> Hacienda was a bricks and mortar version of what Fatchy Records itself was. Which was the, one of the key record labels that came out of punk rock and driven by the vision of Tony Wilson. Tony, why bother to create the Hacienda? Why bother? Well, it's, it's necessary for any period to build its cathedrals. It's necessary for any youth culture to have a sense of place. It's necessary for a city like Manchester to have the facilities that New York and Paris have. Not to have the facilities that New York and Paris have for the young people here would be a disgrace.
and we found ourselves financially in the position that being the only people who were able to do something about it. The story of the Hacienda and Factory Records is really sparked into life by Joy Division, which is one of the first signings. So they created a new sound and a new style, which became part of the foundations of the idea of the Hacienda. You were best friends from 11 years old. When punk came along, I took Bernard to see the Sex Pistols. On the way out, I said we should form a band. I became a drummer. I badgered my parents to let me play the drums, which is, takes a bit of badgering. And then I saw an advert saying drummer wanted for local band. It'll be a laugh if nothing else. We advertised for a singer. Ian's band folded and we just met him. One of the things that people used to say to us, you sound like Manchester. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. How can you sound like a place? Well, kind of now, I get it. I mean, the first album that we did, like Unknown Pleasures, it sounds like how Manchester looked. really started happening when we met two people. Good evening, good evening. Tonight, two major areas of concern. For a start, the world of do-it-yourself, in which we show you how to uh, do it yourself. Oh, everything you want to do, all on the campus of Manchester University. I met Tony on the telly, like everybody else. You know, he was a TV star. Tony maintained this double life. One level, he works at Granada, he was on the telly every five minutes. And on the other hand, he sees this anarchic person trying to subvert society. And the other person was Robert Gretton. He had great taste in music. And he wanted to manage us. They, they really were chalk and cheese. Rob was very much like us. He was very much your yobby. Withenshaw version of us from Salford. So we felt very much at home with Rob. We were Kipax boys, which was the terrace at Man City. That's what we were. Tony would call him the Yobbo from Withenshaw and he'd call him, you know, the Pansy from Cambridge. I remember one meeting, Tony and Rob ended up rolling around the floor wrestling. And so Bob comes up to us, Tony, see how Tony's, he wants to do a record label. That was how Factory started. The Hacienda wasn't just another nightclub. There's a radical idea behind it, which comes from Factory Records, Tony Wilson and Punk itself. It was about changing the world. Peter Samuel. Factory wasn't a formal company in the sense that we understand, you know, businesses. It was about people doing what they wanted to do. Nobody owned anybody and nobody was answerable to anybody else. It wasn't done to make money. It was done to be different.
our division had something that was between the four of us that was absolutely unique and very, very rare. Everything that we did kind of worked. One thing led to another, led to another, led to another. There's, uh, there are a few things, in fact, nothing that I dislike more than being the bringer of bad news for you, but uh, heard during the day that Ian Curtis of Joy Division has died. I don't know any details about it at all, but obviously our sympathies are due to the other members of the band, but most particularly to Ian's uh, family and friends. I got a call one morning from Tony to say that Ian had died, and it was actually an unimaginable shock. Couldn't really see what was going on with him, because he was like one of the sort of people with weakness to have problems, to be depressed. It was, you know, taboo. You just didn't talk about it. You can't um, know someone who's taken their own life and not have regrets. It never goes away from you. You know, what happened as a result of Ian's death, people bought records an unprecedented amount, leading to an influx of money into factory records. Raising the question of what should we do with this money? It's one of the great stories of contemporary pop culture that Bernard, Hooky and Stephen completely reinvented themselves as New Order. We were supposed to go on this tour of America. But that was one of the first things we did, was we went to New York. It was there that we were introduced to American club life. Great, there isn't anywhere like this. They were in big spaces, they were like on multiple floors, because they're all old industrial buildings. And we were all in awe of these places. It really struck a chord. The, the strangest thing that I remember most was the fact that you could get in. We, three tossers in a band, were welcomed into these clubs. Whereas in England, you, you know, if you went up and said, oh, we're in a band, they'd just tell you to piss off. So the conversation actually quickly and quite naturally turned to, we should have somewhere like this in England. It was Rob, Rob, who I heard it from, so they said, oh yeah, yeah, go to a club. We would put half in and Factory would put the other half and we would be joint owners of, of this club. So we just rent a cellar, you put a few bands in, two tables, and that's, that's it. It's a no-brainer, how hard can it be? Makes perfect sense. Did you appreciate the risk? No, no, I've no idea. You just, young lads just went with the idea then? Yeah, we just went with it, yeah. Now, we didn't say, 
Yeah, we're going to do an experiment in modern art and aesthetic. Nobody said that. This is my studio where I have this drawing board. The original drawing board that I drew a load of the drawings of the Hacienda on. These are the original plans. I'd been a student at the Royal College. I was trying to find my way in interior design. When the Hacienda came along, there was this massive blank canvas. A beautiful opportunity to me. I, 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 how could I say no? They just said, do you want the job? Of course I want the bloody job. Thank you very much. record labels called Factory, which had connections with industry. So I ended up adopting a kind of an industrial language by using color coding and stripes to demark hazards. I had this idea by putting roadside bollards with reflectors on them all around the edge of the dance floor to filter people on and off. And usually with nightclubs up until that point, people are creating an escape kind of a fantasy environment that is not really part of the everyday. The Hacienda became a very beautiful way of being in a warehouse in Manchester. The Hacienda was just a celebration of the everyday. So this is where the name came from, which goes back to Tony Wilson's interest and possible obsession with the situationist and this whole kind of anarchic turning over of the political ideal. They were a group of radical thinkers mainly based in Paris. It says, and you've forgotten, your memories ravaged by all the chaos of the planet. No longer leaving for the hacienda, where the roots dream of the child and where the wine ends in tales from some old almanac. Well, you've blown it now. You'll never see the Hacienda. It doesn't exist anywhere. The Hacienda must be built. And God damn it, they built the bloody thing. Anybody like myself, young black kids, there were clubs in Manchester City Centre you could go to. You took a chance, that was it. You could get in, you may get in, but that was the beauty with the Hacienda, because the first time I went in, it just felt like this is a place where we're welcome. There was guys with dreads in there, there was the shoegazers were in there. It was a, quite a bit understaffed. And I said, well, I've not worked on a bar, but I can do the glasses if you want. So I started helping out collecting glasses. What a lot of people kind of tend, when they're talking about the Hacienda, they're thinking of the house days, house music, etc. <laughs> Before that, it really was about the bands that were playing. Well, good evening and welcome to what promises to be the most hectic tube ever. We're in fact live at the Hacienda Club in Manchester, owned by Factory Records. 
Well, I'm pretty sure the tube being that sort of Channel 4 alternative audience show wanted to go to where what Tony Wilson called the interesting community was in Manchester. So where better to go than, than the Hacienda? It was this project to bring art to Manchester, and to bring light to Manchester. That's what we tried to do with everything we booked. I got into a real role of booking things maybe just before they broke. behind the bar the night of Madonna, there were hardly any people there. I think about 100 people at the most must have been there. She came on and she was just dancing, really, on the dance floor. And in those days in Manchester, people did not like people miming. We had to really keep an eye because there was cans flying and stuff. I think Madonna was actually a perfect booking for the Hacienda. It does feel incongruous in a way, but then you realise that Madonna was very much part of that New York club scene that so inspired the Hacienda. I just remember having to take ice down to the dressing room where most people go, oh yeah, thank you. It was kind of scowls and who are you, what are you doing? And when you're kind of thinking, well, this is my place, not yours. There you go, there's your ice, but don't ask me for anything else. I just think it was like, you know, we've got a superstar here. Uh, she knew it, but I don't think anybody else did at the time. Talk to me about when you first went to the It would have been after I left school. So I left school in 83. I was just into music and bands and, oh, this fucking band are playing now. I've got to go and see them. You know, and it wasn't even like I had any mates to go with. All my mates were like, fucking what, what? You know? The first thing about the Ascender is, if you were going, you had to find a fucking place first. Because it had a sign on the front about the size of a packet of king-size wrestlers, right? So like, you don't know where any, you know what I mean? They came straight from Top of the Pops to do it. The Smiths gigs, as I remember them, were all a real fucking vibrant celebration. The Smiths gig was amazing because the stage only comes to here, so you could literally just get on the stage, and the stage that night was bombarded. You were literally able to touch them as they were performing. You know, if you so desired, that's how close you were. So if you wanted to get on the stage, you got on the stage, and unless you caused a real incident, you were going to stay on the stage as long as you wanted. That feeds into a crowd, that closeness. It's a joy. Before, you know, you watch Top of the Pops, there's nobody on it from Manchester. Mocking Mark Bowling and a feather boa. 
I'm like, I'll see many of those around here. But then like New Order and the Smiths. So it made it seem that you could sing in your own accent and wear your own clothes and be yourself and still get somewhere. I guess it made it seem not that far-fetched that you could be a successful band. My role was to book all the bands. The, the booking was far and wide from Curtis Mayfield, all the Young Factory bands, we had Culture Club, everybody. First time New Order played there was the first year it was open. And we were like, this is really good. Playing live, singing live with Blue Monday. Well, by 1983, New Order had done the perfect synthesis between what's ostensibly called indie music and dance culture. So you still have the atmosphere of Eurovision, there's still a melancholia to their music, but also you can dance to it as well. Blue Monday, I had the original 12 inch when it came out. I mean, you listen to that song now and it fucking sounds like it was recorded yesterday. It still sounds like the future. Just thought, wouldn't it be great if we wrote completely kind of automatic song and Rob loved it. Rob was mega. Mega! It's got to be mega! Bernard was like, we're never going to be able to play this live. Can't, it's impossible. You would think with Blue Monday coming out, the new order would be completely loaded, but no. Apart from a few big gigs, like the new order gigs or Smiths, the Hacienda was empty most nights. Tony Wilson, in his grandiose way, said that it was necessary to build a cathedral to popular culture in Manchester. The problem was that it only attracted a tiny congregation. Going, it was freezing cold, it was massive. There was never anyone there. Although we didn't realise at the time, everything you were doing was raising money for the club. thing was is that then we were struggling we weren't being paid a lot we didn't we weren't earning a lot of money from new order because most of it was going in the hacienda with factory we never knew how many records we'd sold with tony it would all be written on the back of his hand because of that it was kind of went into factory and it's like whoosh, straight out again it was a big problem i never put it down to any kind of underhand behavior I would say probably a degree of fiscal irresponsibility on behalf of the directors, who were, after all, doing what they wanted to do rather than running a business. With Tony and Rob, I think the excitement of having the club kept them motivated to just keep running this completely mad white elephant. There must be something on the horizon. And then, all of a sudden, this new star in dance music, she's emerging from Detroit and Chicago, and nobody could have sensed the impact that was gonna have. In America, the disco craze obviously been going right throughout the 70s. Seeing black artists, you know, full black groups, you know, with afros and clothes that we want to wear, it was phenomenal. It kind of just grew and uh, took over. 
kind of think a seminal moment is uh, Donna Summers Feel Love. Just all electronica and this kind of minimal, I feel love, you know what I mean? Really sultry kind of vocal, etc. And that kind of opened up the doors for people to kind of say, well, I don't need a drummer, I don't need this, I don't need a bass player, I don't need this, I can do it all on these little sequence of things. Earliest house origins are based in Chicago, in the club scene. Drum, bass, and then basically vocal, a great bass line, a good drum pattern, and then, you know, a, a minimal chords. Those are what would really make house. The imports arrived in Manchester. Manchester picked them up and then the kids started playing them. That was going into Moss Side. Music was really important to me as a kid growing up. It was all I had. I remember being a kid in the 60s. My parents were always playing music. They weren't welcoming nightclubs. So their culture was to have house parties. They started that blues culture, which is just basically setting up a club in somebody's house. Our generation just carried on that tradition. We just took it to another level. We would end up in West Indian centres, we would end up in community centres, somebody's house. Anywhere that there was a space where they would allow us to um, go in and entertain ourselves. It made my side a party destination every Saturday night. So all these streets were all just drinking, smoking. It was mad, it was crazy. The first time I heard house music, it's probably about 1984. I didn't know what it was called. It was just high tempo style of music. was this African tribal vibe. It was unique to the hood. The Hacienda. From 86, 87, the policy went from uh, more gigs to fewer gigs and more club nights. The first time we had a successful, really successful club night was the Friday night, the nude night. That was a massive success. And then one night, one of the young black kids came to the door, knocked on the door and gave me, he said, play, play this, Mike. And it was uh, Adonis No Way Back on Trapped Records. I just thought, this is brilliant. I love this music. You started to read about this nude night. You know, what, are they all naked? What the, what the fuck's going on down there? <laughs> I think, you know, we've got to go and see what's going on here, you know what I mean? It's like, sounded interesting, this new music. 
from America. Right, it was just a monotonous. What a lot of people didn't realise was the culture of Manchester had that electronic music background from New Order. House music is just the bass line, the drum beat, you know, and you're just like, that is so radical. That immediately worked, all that worked at the house. Bang, here we go, something's happening here. And then, around 88, 89, the ecstasy pill was then married to our house music and the rave scene was born. into this, this unbelievable vision. The energy was electric, intoxicating. And there were 2,000 people in there and there were 2,000 people dancing at once. They were dancing on the chairs, they were dancing on the tables, they were dancing on the stage, they were dancing on the podiums. We're kind of like just pulled into this rhythm and this beat and this collective experience that was going on that was just like nothing else I'd ever, ever come across. When the people were on the stage and on the dance floor, it was just fucking heaving massive limbs. A lot of white guys who couldn't dance, it didn't matter anymore. You don't need to be able to dance, you can just do that. And the more the groove repeated, the more you felt it inside yourself and the more you wanted to dance. I don't think I'd ever danced in my life, maybe at a wedding, and then that my fault's happening. What the fuck is going on? Hang on a minute. Well, hang on a minute. And then before you, I mean, not that I was knee sliding across the dance floor. There was like a liberation. They got that liberation that we'd all always had. You're now driven by there's just this thing tearing through your body, this music, the sounds, everything. And you, you, you just do what you gotta do. So that's it, everyone was just free now up until house music, which brought a lot of white people into the black domain for the first time, yeah, they would have never been exposed to that. I was an art student in North Wales. I wanted to study fashion at the time. Ecstasy played a role in the Hacienda and it was prevalent but it wasn't necessary to the experience at all. I certainly didn't need to go in there and feel like you need to be off your head to enjoy the Hacienda. The energy and the atmosphere itself was intoxicating. Whatever anybody says, the two are like that. If it wasn't for the drug, the music wouldn't have taken off. And if it wasn't for the music, the drug wouldn't have taken off. The East scene affected everybody's experience of the Hacienda. I've heard one quote where Ucky come out with something like there weren't that many people, you know, taking in there. Well, fuck me. You know, I mean, there was, you know, 90% of the fucking club. 
Well, I'd left in 1985 and I'd come back. That's when I went in on the management team. And as a manager and licensee, it was just absolutely incredible. You knew stuff was going on because I was the biggest seller of water in the UK. Trucks of water were arriving every Monday. That was quite something. We didn't know anything about the body overheating or anything then. So we just used to line up pints of water because that's all anybody had asked for. The North has become used to searching for work. Two years ago, an expanding supermarket chain advertised jobs and the queue stretched right around the building. In the mid-80s, you had Thatcher, you had the Tory government. They were at war, really, with the north of England. They were at war with the miners. Youth unemployment. If I could press a button and genuinely solve the unemployment problem, do you think that I would not press that button this instant? There was a sense that people were being pitted against each other. Yet at the Hacienda, there was a togetherness that was very powerful, very political, very utopian. People on the dance floor were feeling things with a positivity and intensity they would never be feeling in their weekly life. I come from just outside Manchester, in a Lancashire mill town. Very much white working class culture, very different society back then. You know, you might shake your dad's hands on Christmas Day, and that was it. I don't even think I even gave my mum a kiss back in that era. Perhaps I didn't realise at the time I was yearning for change, but I was. I can remember a moment in the Hacienda that really moved me very early on. The dance floor held hands. Right around the dance floor were holding hands to the music, and that really blew me away. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. That affected a northern lad like me right to the core. I was not at all comfortable going to mainstream clubs. I didn't like the idea that people only went out because they were on the pull, but going to the Hacienda wasn't like that. Men were there and women were there because the music was brilliant and to meet like-minded people without it being going out on the pull. It made me see girls differently. I don't think I ever had girls as friends until after that. And now I've got fucking too many of them. From a cultural point of view, it felt like it was breaking boundaries. It was sort of political without being political. It was revolutionary without violence. It was unity, love, joy, all of that. It was a revolution and it was a revolution on a dance floor. An extremely trendy club, so I'm told. Hitman and Her was a cult late night show which had this formula of rocking up to kind of sticky carpet discos. If the Hacienda was like a glimpse into the future of clubbing, 
The Hitman and Her, in a sense, was a glimpse into the past of clubbing, the clubs where people drank lager and danced around handbags. It just seemed a very different kind of world. You'd come home from the Hacienda quite often and turn on Hitman and Her on the TV. It was a complete culture clash. Oh, my God. We thought it'd be a great idea. It was great publicity for the club. I think the production team, shall we say, and the presenters in particular, did get quite shocked. Simon, come on. You're a regular here, Simon. What is so good about this club? Come on, tell me. There's nothing actually special about the club. It's just like it's the only place to go in Manchester. Basically. Well, I feel very sorry for Manchester. <laughs> nice one. Well, it looks like Michaela's having a ball down there. But just let's have a watch of this guy playing all these records. Sometimes he's actually playing two records at once. It's all clever stuff here, all clever stuff. Pete, to be fair, if you're trying to explain to people what it is about the Hacienda, and I remember jumping about off, off my head at the back of it. Mike Pickering, give me some of that kick, go on. This boy knows a hot tune. He definitely knows a hot tune. Tuning in were, you know, the nation's youngsters who had come back from their own night out. There they were looking at what was going on in the Hacienda, new music, new fashion, new ways of dancing. It stopped being that secret society and became a national movement. By now, the Hacienda is a key cultural driver in British pop culture. Boxes Ride on Time, which is a big dance floor, hitting the Hacienda within weeks is number one in the UK. What was an alternative culture became mass market. I remember The Sun ran a piece about a talk Mancunian and then the tourists arrived. The fashion was T-shirt, jeans, obviously baggy, trainers. People were there to dance, people were there to sweat. What they chose to wear reflected that. When you take ecstasy, um, it puts you in a state of mind where if you wear something tight, it just makes you feel uncomfortable. The whole politics of the country got changed because of the EC. Nobody would settle for going home at two o'clock in the morning anymore. You know, fucking thousands of people had head to the service stations on the motorway and start carrying on the party or literally bust into a warehouse. There were people from all walks of life and nobody really judged each other. That really opened my horizon. You suddenly were mixing with people of all classes, working class, middle class, upper class. 
going to university opens your horizons in some ways, but for kids that hadn't been to university, I think it did the same. I was never into dance music or electronic music or anything that wasn't played on a guitar. Musically, it opened me up to everything. Initially, the indie bands are completely caught flat-footed by Acid House. And what do you do if you're a guitar band? How do you react to this? Some bands totally ignored it, and other bands kind of did a fusion of the style. And some groups, like the Happy Mondays, were actually driving along from the very start. The Mondays were the people you'd see most in the Hacienda, out of all the other bands. You know, we probably didn't go home, apart from a, a shower, you know, for about five or six years. It was one constant party. Bez still hasn't really been home since 1989. They'd always be behind the bar, you know. They acted as if they were part of the management team because they were signed to factory. What they did was take that rhythm, energy, and the frequencies that you were experiencing at the Hacienda, and they turned that into a show, a performance. It was off your face dance music. We've booming bass lines and bass beats and, and shit, yeah. I'm not good at answering this sort of shit. I don't do this, you know what I mean? I'm not a fucking pseudo-intellectual. The Happy Mondays were not an accident. The Happy Mondays were always listening. They were on the dance floor, they knew the dance floor. Manchester became pop culture centre. They had the Hacienda, and they had the Happy Mondays, they had the Stone Roses. I remember the nights that both Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses played Top of the Pops. That was the night when you knew that the Manchester scene had become mainstream. It was quite the thing, do you know what I mean, to have them both on Top of the Pops. And, you know, Ian defiantly not singing into the microphone and Sean couldn't remember his own words, he was miming some other shit. Nobody had a fucking clue, really. The people working the show didn't have a clue who was in the band. I tried to get Ian to play drums in the Mondays and I was going to go and uh, play Manny's bass and Manny was going to come on and be lead singer. One of my great off me tips ideas, which I'm um, in the light of day, you know, now. <laughs> Glad it didn't happen. I know it would have been pretty funny. Yeah. 
It was like this massive sense of pride because you were involved in it and they were just working class people. And I think people were really strutting around Manchester after that. Coroner has recorded a verdict of death by misadventure on a 16-year-old girl who died after taking the drug ecstasy. The inquest heard today that Claire Layton developed a rare reaction to the drug after taking only one tablet in a Manchester nightclub. What was shocking was that she was so young and that it was uh, such a, a rare, kind of random reaction to an ecstasy tablet. The court was told by the coroner that this was the first death in Britain directly related to this particular drug. He said people should be more aware of the dangers of ecstasy. It was awful. I mean, it had a very, very terrible effect, not only on the Hacienda, but also on Manchester and also on anybody who knew, you know, the family. It was awful. first spark of the match is the exciting bit and then it's how long is the flame going to burn and it's just a fact of life that things get shitter the longer they go on. We're all taking E and E's a £25 a shot, that's a lot of money, got like a million, two million pound weekend. With the gangsters in Manchester you've got this club that's very high profile and also it's got an illegal trade worth millions of pounds, of course they're going to get interested. Well, the Hacienda quickly became a place in that era where no one was safe. My job is just changing into getting this video from this camera, handing that in for the police, all that sort of thing. It just was losing all the fun. There was a night where you know, somebody got knifed in the club and they shut the club. They locked everybody in, everyone was taken out one by one and <laughs> fucking photographed. Well, what the fuck is going on here? We got marched out of the club. They literally had riot police with shields growing along, so you walk this phalanx and they bang on the shields as you're walking through it. And I resigned at that point, really. Violence became the, the biggest aspect of the Hacienda, and it was the saddest thing in the world. The government's considering giving local councils new powers to control acid house the parties. The to ban acid house parties has been given an unopposed second reading in the Commons. The illegal raves, they were uncontrolled, and that scares the authorities, especially uncontrolled, energised young people. Running battles involving police, private security guards and party-goers continued along what had been a quiet country road. Instead of making it a safer space, the government just comes in with their trungeons and batters the whole thing down. Acid House became public enemy number one. It was hounded out of the fields, out of the clubs and out of the culture. 
and the party, in a sense, was over. By 91, the Hacienda was in a bit of a spiral. I remember having breakfast with Tony Wilson saying, I tell you what, I've got the answer. If we do a gay night, the gangsters won't come and we'll get a much more interesting crowd. We can rekindle this party. I was a student and I'd been wanting to go to the Hacienda for quite a while. And when I walked in, I wasn't disappointed with what I saw. it just meant we were safe, everybody could come. We wanted to bring the glamour back, the sex. Because I think the Hacienda had got very asexual and instead of baggy clothes we had a lot of nudity. It was completely outrageous and extraordinary. You see people walking around naked, Paulie Yates, the Pet Shop Boys, loads of S&M dykes, just people having full sex, drag queens everywhere. It was just beautiful. Before that point, people didn't want to go to gay clubs. They were completely uncool. And we got to the point where there were so many straight people wanted to come, we had to check them on the doors. We were quite provocative with it. On our tickets we printed, management reserved the right to refuse admission to known heterosexuals. They had to like go through a test of gayness. The girls on the door would be saying, let's see you kiss your friend if you want to come in. Because gay people were complaining there were so many straight people inside, they couldn't get in. I think for Manchester it was really groundbreaking. This idea of it's queer up north totally reinvented Manchester. So it kind of gave it that doorway into being a gay city, not just a kind of post-industrial white working class city, but a gay city. I then came up with this idea, which I pitched to them, that we should turn the whole club into a gay night. Which basically went down like a piece of shit. The Hacienda was never really the same again. I think it was a sort of slow death. Tony just used to put his head in his hands and go, how the hell did we end up here? <laughs> and Robert just go, shut up, you bastard. Sure, it's all your fault. In the same way that Ian got himself in a situation that he couldn't find a way out of it, Rob got himself in a situation, and Tony, that they couldn't get out of. That's the end of it. I'd never make back the money that I'd lost initially. What was really great about the Hacienda and about Factory was about ideas, it wasn't about money. But the trouble is, if you're not thinking about the money, it will catch up with you in the end. You were in financial bear trap that you could not break out of. And Rob Gretton eventually, you know, decided he'd had enough and um, closed the club in 
into the bowels of my lockup. These are the accounts for 1985 and 1984. So in 1985, we put in 85,000, which is probably be a combination of the performances we did there and money that we had to put in. And in 84, we put in 110,000, so that's 200,000 in two years. And here at the bottom, you can see that at the year for 1985, we did it for love because it made a loss of 56,000 in 1985, made a loss in, of 44,000 in 1984. So that's on top of us putting 200 in, it lost another 100. Do you know now how much money New Order put into the Hacienda? It was an awful lot of money. It's all right, because we're all still here. Are you talking millions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah it's not a few grand, mate. <laughs> yeah, you're into millions, yeah. I know for a fact that now New Order's relationship is badly, badly affected by the Hacienda even today, which is 15 years after we split. I think it's, yeah, I think it has gone really deep on all of us. It's such a huge... Uh, things have to dealt with in your lives. So for New Order, it just fed into the divisions in the band. Yeah, it does so maybe um, sad because yeah, we were we were friends and we did it was great. We went through a lot, and now um, we're not anymore. The legacy is about people. And it's about the inclusivity and the making sure that anybody, no matter what they wore or who they were, or what bloody colour they were or what planet they were from, were able to meet and feel free. I still go to Hacienda nights. When they're on, I'll come up for London with a load of mates and it's still great. The music's still great. We're still here talking about it. Working at the Hacienda really changed me. According to the police, I was the first woman in the UK to hold a licence for that size venue. It just gave me this confidence of I can do anything. It certainly gave me confidence to say who I am and do what I want and not listen to what anybody else thinks. The whole music thing that surrounds this Hacienda factory thing, it is the modern history of Manchester. We're all proud of the fact that we played a, a massive part in that. In, let's say, 75% of the new music that I hear, there's that same DNA that's come from my parents from when they first landed here in the 50s and 60s. I can sense that. For many reasons, the Hacienda was an extraordinary project. The Hacienda re-envisaged Manchester itself as a post-industrial city. The Hacienda is the point where the city sees that it can regenerate itself. Attitudes were changed. Lives were changed by the Hacienda. Okay, it's only on a dance floor for a few hours, but actually it isn't. It's a feeling and an attitude that stays with you when you wake up and it stays with you 
for the rest of the week and it's eventually it's completely changed your life. Not only did it make me a more empathetic person, it did the same for a lot of people. I think our generation made those changes. I think the next generation is different now because of that. Sometimes I feel like